All right. Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today we are going to do a sort of debate reflection. Uh, I, I guess we can call it a debate review, but we're not going to be going through the entire debate point by point. Um, but uh, we're going to be discussing the debate that Dr. James White had with Dr. Tim Stratton on the proposition, is Molinism biblical? If I seem a little off and I look a little tired, just real quick, um, um, I, I had to go to the hospital uh, two nights ago. Um, there was a stomach, uh, my kids had a stomach bug, and I think I caught it. And uh, you mix that in with the fact that I was very dehydrated. Apparently, it is frowned upon in the medical field to drink more coffee than one drinks water. Uh, so uh, the symptoms of my stomach bug were magnified, and I had to be uh, taken to the hospital, and it was pretty dramatic, but here I am. <laughs> so uh, I'm feeling much better now, and um, I'm so happy to have Dr. White uh, with me. Um, and um, I suppose, I, I don't know, I, I suppose this might be the last time I, I I'll be able to get him on to talk about this topic. I think I've dragged him into this uh, conversation uh, much longer than than probably he, he wanted to. But um, uh, before we officially get started, I'd like to just personally and publicly thank Dr. White. I know he's super busy and he's dealing with all sorts of things with a new job as a professor, the work that he does in apologetics. I just very appreciative of the time he's been able to take to um, to answer my questions and to come on and talk about these important issues. So Without further ado, um, let me uh, reintroduce uh, Dr. James White onto Revealed Apologetics. How are you doing, Dr. White? Well, not too bad. I probably uh, started a few brush fires on the dividing line today, but um, um, you got to do what you got to do, I guess. And That's uh, right. I did. I did announce to the world that um, this entire Molinism thing is your fault. And because um, <laughs> look, when I I don't remember what it was exactly. It was during the lockdown stuff. You you contacted me and you said, "Would you come on?" And you know, I've I've all sorts felt sorry for you. You know, you're just this guy that's just so nice, and you know, and um, so would you come on and talk about Molinism? I hadn't talked about Molinism in forever, and, and it's it's just like. Well, it's not my favorite topic, but you know, if you insist, and that that then led to another thing, another thing, and you were actually throwing Tim Stratton stuff out. I didn't even know who Tim Stratton was. I had responded to him once, like in 2015, 2016, something, uh, an article he had written, and um, had no earthly idea uh, about uh, what had gone on with him after that or anything else. And sure. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, so uh, if folks enjoyed the debate, they can, uh, if they enjoyed it, they can thank you. And if they didn't, they can blame you. Either, either way it goes, it's that's fine. I'm just, I'm passing off all responsibility to everybody else today. It's just well, how well, I feel. I'll, I happily take that responsibility because I'm, I'm very much into people having discussions that aren't happening enough. As, as you know, this topic does cover some interesting and important issues that I think, uh, you know, uh, they're good to have. And, and unfortunately, the internet is just such a crazy place that people sometimes can't take, um, you know, two sides coming together and without having this kind of party spirit and arguments in a, in a very ungodly way, I think, on the internet, which is unfortunate. So so before we even jump into our main topic, I want to I want to read a scripture real quick um, that obviously all of us are going to be familiar with. And I think uh, Dr. Stratton um, quoted the scripture as well, but it's Colossians chapter 4, verses five and six. Okay. And this is my encouragement to those who are watching. I know uh, there are a lot of people watching and will be watching this. And, and if you're a Christian, 
I want to encourage you guys with um, this scripture and keep it on the forefront of your mind when you're engaging in debate and disagreement over these important issues. Um, Colossians 4 verses uh, 5 through 6 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Okay. Um, yeah, that has a specific context, but I, I do think that it is relevant to how we interact with brothers and sisters over areas of disagreement. They're important. We should debate them, uh, but make sure we're doing so in a Christ-like manner. So that's my encouragement to the audience. Um, and so without further ado, uh, let's begin. Let's begin our interview. Okay. Uh, so Dr. White, just as a, a general kind of a broad question here, uh, what were your thoughts going into the debate? Uh, just generally speaking, how did you... Um, prepare, what were some areas that you thought really needed to be brought out? And then maybe after the debate in a broad sense, how did you, how did you think the debate went? And then we'll kind of get into some more specified questions. Uh, the, the only reason that I accepted the invitation, well, it was, it, it was not. You're going to blame I, me again. Don't blame I me. Was, again. I, was, I was putting together uh, these, these trips that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. They take a lot of work to try to get all these different churches and organizations and stuff like that um, to where I can drive to all these locations and get it into chronological order. And I had hoped to go over to Louisiana and do a debate there on the subject of Roman Catholicism. That didn't work out. Mm -hmm. And so I had the invitation from uh, Pastor McClanahan uh, there in Houston was on the way home. And so it was, it was putting something at the end of a month long, uh, trip, sure. uh, which included a lot of speaking and teaching at, uh, at Grace Bible Theological Seminary and stuff like that. And so I wouldn't have done it except that what he said to me was he's willing to have as the thesis statement is Molinism biblical. Mm -hmm. And so my desire was to focus upon or hope that we could focus upon uh, what it means for something to be biblical. What does that, what does that mean? Sure. And that's why in my opening statement, I said, well, there's, there's that which is derived from scripture that is biblical. And then there are those that would claim that something outside of scripture can be biblical because it doesn't necessarily contradict biblical sure. teaching something along those lines. And of course, that was the, the perspective I expected Dr. Stratton to, uh, to present. Um, and so I, I, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know. I, I knew certain people were going to be showing up. Um, and uh, there was a sort of a, a posse uh, there. Uh, sure. But I would, I would say that though we did not, I don't really have any contacts in Houston. We didn't, as a, as a minister or something, we didn't put out the word that we need all of our supporters to get to Houston and nothing like that. This, mm -hmm. um, I, I would say the large majority of the folks in the room anyways were seemingly were on my side. I don't know if you listened to the uh, concluding statements and the applause afterwards, mm -hmm. but it was um, there was a there was a major difference in the audience reaction 
after Tim finished his closing statement and after I finished mine. Mm-hmm. And it was such a major difference um, that I looked over toward him as I was sitting down and we locked eyes and he just sort of grinned like, yeah, I know. I, mm-hmm. I, I see that. Um, so, and then afterwards we, um, we walked over uh, together to where they, they had the greeting stuff set up. Um, they had some nice food for us, things like that. I think bugs me about this kind of thing is it they put me right near the food and then I'm too busy to ever have any. So it's, <laughs> it's like a, a wedding. It's sort of a torture thing. Um, it's, it's like you're uh, the reception at the wedding. Yeah, yeah but you don't get to have anything. And um, so I just I just make people wait. And I went over, had some brownie bites, <laughs> things like that. It's like, you know what? If you want to take a picture, I'm going to have a chocolate chip cookie in my hand. That's the way it is. You know, the older I get, I don't care. You know, I, I want some sure. food after this. So, but what's funny was they set it up to where we were, we never saw each other the rest of the night. Uh, there was one room then a hallway and another room and they put the um, uh, reasonable faith folks down there with him. And we, I was down with Accordance Bible software and they were selling my books on Accordance. So sure. um, that, you know, we didn't see each other <coughs> the rest of the evening. And so it was like two days later that I saw that the, the um, church uh, had done a poll on the live stream um, of, uh, you know, who won the debate, blah, 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 blah. And um, that was right about the same time that Tim was uh, fairly regularly claiming to have won the debate uh, on his social media platforms. The poll went the other direction. Uh, but anyway, uh, and so... It got interesting afterwards, uh, just in the sense of that kind of stuff. Mm. As to as to how I thought it, it went, um, I've I've been really disappointed with most of the commentary. Then again, as I think back over the past 10, 15 years, I'm normally disappointed with the commentary in social media. And I would blame most of that on the fact that we don't we're not taught how to evaluate debates and presentations and that includes christians and so it's primarily an emotional thing a a looks thing you know everyone always reminds you of the uh, nixon kennedy debates uh back back in the day uh where everybody who listened to the radio thought nixon creamed kennedy sure but everybody who watched thought Kennedy creamed Nixon. And it was because of the the lighting and the and Nixon was sweating and Kennedy looked much younger and more, you know, confident and, and confident and stuff. So people judge things for all sorts of wacky reasons. <clears throat> but I had made the statement during the debate multiple times that the 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 thing that I think came out the most clearly was that Molinism is specifically Molinism has no life apart from Reformed theology. It has no life. It has no reason for existence. It was designed, as I have said historically, uh, by Molina as a antidote, a counteracting agent 
to the Reformation, to Reformed Gospel. And when Tim chose to, in essence, use what I would almost call a transcendental argument. It, it is. We've spoken in the past. He he does see his one uh, his argument as sort of a transcendental, that yeah. if you affirm it, then you're kind of, if you deny it, you're kind of affirming it. Yeah. In, in the sense of the impossibility of the contract. Mm -hmm. um, instead of a positive argument from scripture. I mean, that is sort of what the thesis of the debate sure. would expect, you'd expect, would not be, I'm going to prove Molinism by attacking Calvinism from multiple different fronts mm -hmm. and simply say, if that form of Calvinism fails, therefore Molinism must be true. Mm -hmm. um, most of the reactions and the evaluations of the debate have not really focused upon whether that's even a possible uh, argument, let alone for me, and maybe I'm in the minority here, but I can only I can only respond to something in in the way that I think is is most important. Sure. The issues relating to different kinds of creaturely freedom and libertarian free will and and uh, categorical will and, and conditional and all that stuff is fine and dandy, but you have to have those conversations with almost any theological system mm -hmm. that attempts to produce some type of theodicy. Sure. So those issues are not unique to Molinism. The solution to Molinism is unique, but why? What is the one thing that separates Molinism from everything else? And I would say that the debate really did not do well in bringing that issue out from both sides, because no matter mm -hmm. how hard I attempted uh, to push, uh, no matter how I would sit during cross-examination while Tim filibustered and go right back to my question or whatever else, I, I could not get him to do what would have taken 10 seconds to get William Lane Craig to do. Mm -hmm. And I knew that from reading his book. I knew that from listening to his presentations. He, this mere Molinism thing is not Craig's uh, approach. It just isn't. Sure. And... So I, I and I don't think it's Molina's approach. <laughs> so so I, I think yeah. it is a I, I think it is a purposefully truncated perspective that is intended to be less subject to refutation because it makes con considerably less of a positive claim. Mm -hmm. The problem is, from my perspective, by not making the central claim. You're not making any claim at all. If, mm -hmm. if you won't defend the existence of the subjunctive conditionals, which is, it's the gas, it's the nuclear reactor, it's the electrical source, whatever you want to call it, that makes the thing work, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And he won't, he won't, the, the closest he would get to even addressing that would be saying, well, 
God cannot determine a free human action. That's, that's a logical impossibility. And all I'm saying is God is a logical being. That's as close as uh, uh, that was. And I don't consider that an answer, um, but that's well what that, initially. So that, that would seem uh, if libertarian free will is is true, then I would agree with that statement. However, I don't think he established as well as he thought he did libertarian freedom. Right. So there's there's a lot of, uh, I think, either begging the question in some instances or insufficient uh, argumentation leading to that conclusion um, in, in my estimation. So because if libertarian free will is true and you couple that with the determinism along the lines of what we would hold to. Yeah, I get it. If, if God causally determines someone and libertarian free will is true that seems to be kind of an incompatibility thing there but but i don't think he sufficiently demonstrated libertarian freedom from scripture or from well, philosophical consideration well, categorically obviously um mm -hmm. we would i would argue um that this is the the central issue mm -hmm. in regards to uh the very nature of even using the term terminology causal determinism mm -hmm. uh he doesn't want to get into um, primary and secondary and, and multiphasic causality and, and, and all, everything else that would go into any type of discussion of, of what determinism, how, how it even function. But the point is that even that within his system is determined, well, within the Molinistic system is determined by the content of middle knowledge. And I just have come to the conclusion that that Tim is has decided that that is not a a claim that he is going to defend that he is simply going to say if God is omniscient then he has whatever knowledge there is and right. I'm not going to address well yeah. okay he did say at one point and I don't remember I don't remember at which point in the debate it was, whether it was in the formal portion or whether it was in the Q&A portion. Um, I actually have, I did remember. Are you talking about when he said that this is where it comes from? It comes yes. from, I think that was during the rebuttal uh, when he gave his first rebuttal. Yeah, so um, when, he, when he said it comes from God's nature, God's being, I think is what it was. Mm -hmm. and, and I was like, how how does that even how does that even function because if it's a part and i you're right i did get a chance to respond to it now that i think about it if it's a part of god's nature but does not come from his will and see i think that's in q and a i was going to ask him so do you disagree with dr craig's um statement that these do not come forth from his will and i i don't know that i even got a chance to ask that question mm -hmm. Um, but that would be the question that I would, that I would want to ask Sure, is I've, I've not, I've heard him say it's a part of God's nature, but if it's not a part of God's nature by God's will, then is, then it would have to be natural knowledge of God himself, mm -hmm. not middle knowledge. Yeah. So I, I don't know how he fits that in. Well, I maybe, think, uh, maybe he doesn't feel like he needs to. I don't know. I just I just think that if someone says, well, if God is omniscient, then he has to know these things. 
that just begs the question. It, it assumes that middle knowledge is a thing. <laughs> you have to demonstrate it. So for example, um, middle knowledge, in order for middle knowledge to work, God has to have his counterfactual knowledge logically prior to the divine decree. Right. How do you demonstrate that philosophically and biblically? I mean, you need that, you need that to achieve the proposition of the debate. Is, is Molinism biblical? You need to prove biblically this philosophical concept that God has um, counterfactual knowledge logically prior to the divine decree. How do you do that? I don't, I don't see, I didn't see him actually flesh that out. Perhaps he tried to, I, but not, at least not to my satisfaction. Um, I, I no, wanna, no yeah. but, but, but let's remember what, what did, what did he take time to do? And I was deeply disappointed in this. I don't know if the camera found it, saw it. I, I, I think my head probably dropped down. Okay. Um, because I, I said, um, uh, yeah, uh, he is, he is going to do the, you can't trust scripture garbage. That's right. the, that's a direct, that's a direct, what I wrote on my, uh, and everybody keeps asking me, uh, to give them a, uh, a review of the, uh, uh remarkable two tablet that I, <laughs> that I took my notes on. Did you ask as well? I asked, and it's I love it, but it's that's a that's a wallet buster, man. It's a, it's a chunk of change, um, and <laughs> but it is nice to have all these notes. You know, I've got I still got the Craig notes on here and stuff like that. Um, I'm jealous. But like I told you, if you've got something else that you can write on and it feels good and it's readable, probably not worth the investment. But it does really feel like you're writing on paper. Uh, and it doesn't pick up like your hand and stuff like that and cause it really, it really did allow me to take and if folks, back. And if folks order now through, uh, Alpha and Omega, they'll get, <laughs> with, a, they'll get a free with, shipping with, with of your, essence. With our promo code. Yeah. <laughs> they'll get a free shipping of the essence of white. Uh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, no, it, it does work well for that, but I'm not sure okay. it's worth that. But if you're traveling for me, yeah, it's, it's, it's worthwhile. But anyways, I, I was. I was really disappointed. Okay. Um, when that came up in his presentation, um, first of all, I, I I really doubt how many. I'll be honest with you on, on a simple level of criticism. Um, I'm not sure how many people in the audience were really able to follow his opening statement. Um, I think he has to realize this is a. This is a topic that is not in the wheelhouse of the vast majority of, sure. of Christians. It's not, it's counterintuitive. It's highly specialized. It uses specialized terminology. And that means if what you really want to do is communicate the essence of that to your audience, you need to, you need to lay it, lay, put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Right. I'm going to interrupt you there because I think you'll find this interesting. I had a friend who attended the debate and took some students with him from Rice University. Now, I'm going to read this real quick, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind. Uh, but this doesn't mean that Molinism is false or unbiblical or Calvinism is true. I just think it's an interesting observation. Uh, my friend here, he says, my Rice University students went to go see James White and Tim Stratton debate. They were astounded at Stratton's argumentation. Um, and then I asked, astounded in what way? And they said, bad. You're talking about Ivy League university students. Here's a direct quote from one of them with the highest IQ. Again, doesn't mean Molinism is false, but I think this is interesting in light of what you said. Um, quote, I still don't know what Molinism is, but I know it's not biblical. That's a direct quote. 
two were Molinists are now leaning the opposite direction, not being a Molinist. Now I'm sure right. someone could pick someone from the audience with an, you know, with a, di a different perspective. Right. And, but right. I think that was interesting in terms of the, uh, um, the clarity of, of Tim's position, people who speak the language of philosophy and those sorts of things might've understood, but to the average person coming in, it's, it was for, for, for a, an argument that's supposed to prove that it's biblical. I still think it was too philosophical. <laughs> it, was well, yeah, it, it was, and it was way, he had to go way too fast and he tried to cover way too much ground. Mm -hmm. The argument uh, of the deceptive God mm -hmm. thing, when you've only got 20 minutes, you've got 20 minutes to prove Molinism is, is biblical and that's worth four of your four or five of your minutes. That astounded me. I, I because I I have a hard time respecting the argument, first of all. Uh, but secondly, I I cannot I wasn't looking, I was too busy writing at that point. I wasn't looking at the audience at that point, but I cannot imagine that that almost anyone in that room was was actually following that or actually bought the idea um, whatsoever. But since the debate, what has been the primary claim that Dr. Stratton himself has made repeatedly? Um, and that that was the big loser was EDD. Mm -hmm. He really feels like, oh, you didn't you didn't touch my arguments, and I, I'm like, that's because your arguments weren't. Uh, demonstrative of the thesis and therefore in a in a in a formal debate um touching arguments that are not demonstrative of the thesis is really a waste of your time uh mm -hmm. it may it may be necessary to do that because you got nothing else to do uh but i i was really i was really taken aback by that but look i, I liked him we had a nice conversation beforehand um he signed my book uh, uh his I signed his book um, and, uh, I appreciate that. Um, I just, I'll be, I'll be straight up front here. I just felt <clears throat> that since he had a group that sat right in front of him, mm -hmm. so there was communication going on over on from where I was sitting over on that side. And it's interesting. I did, I did happen to see, remember the debate that they had there with, uh, Layton and Pritchett? And the two fire breathing hyper. Yeah, <laughs> hey, must you remind me? <laughs> <laughs> well, of well, course, I remember that debate, Doctor White. <laughs> yes, yes, we the all. Echo we all the the yeah. echo is still is ringing in my ear. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I I happened to click on it. Uh, someone in another channel had had posted it, and I clicked on it. I was like, you know, my my visual picture was not the same as what I ended up seeing when I got into the church. But then when I watched the, watched the, some of the video. I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That is the only thing that was different was they had them speak at uh, two different lecterns. Sure. Um, that was about the only thing that was, that was different between, between it, but man, it must've been really interesting at that table because Tim and I were sort of separated from each other. Um, because I thought it was weird that we were going to be facing each other and not being able to see the audience and stuff like that. So we sort of switched stuff around. But in that one, they had that table turned. And man, those guys were right, ac <laughs> right across from each other. So, I mean, that that must have been really, really, really awkward. Um, 
nothing like that thankfully happened and uh, I, I I'm, I'm glad even though I, I do think that having Tim over there near his people um I don't think that was a good I don't think that worked out well because I I felt like he was under pressure and was nervous because mm -hmm. they were there mm. and he was having to perform for them. Yeah, and, there were moments where he, when he tried to come back to some of your zingers, he was kind of, it seemed like he was looking over there for yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think that helped back. him. Yeah. I, I do not think mm -hmm. that helped him at all. And I know there, there's only been, I've only done a couple two-man debates. Mm -hmm. That's, it is, well, you saw the debate I did with uh, Iglesias and Cristo, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so. Can you imagine your your table was the cleanest and clearest table I've ever seen? While your opponent's table looked like he brought a library. Well, he's got, he did bring a library, <laughs> and he's got five guys running around grabbing books for him. And I I cannot imagine what that would be like. I like I said the the few times I've done two on two debates, it it, it, it when Mike Brown and I work together. That's sort of weird because we finish each other's sentences and stuff like that. And given how different we are as individuals, sure, uh, that, that, I think that's a little supernatural. But uh, I've done, I think, one or two others, and I find it harder. I I would much rather be able to focus and not have. I can't imagine having a posse down there giving me hand signals or passing me notes. I, I couldn't do that. I. That would be way, way, way too distracting. You just, you just need you and your remarkable too, and that's good. That's well, good. if I have it with me, that's fine. Uh, but uh, yeah, th th that's what I need. So mm -hmm. I, I think that was was an issue. And mm -hmm. let me just say, I, I know much has been said about the cross examination. Um, I haven't said a lot about it. I, I I made my feelings known about it at the time. I don't know if you saw the clip. Um, but someone did pull it out of the video and, and made a meme out of it or something. Mm -hmm. But at one point, Tim just decides he's just going to keep on keeping on uh, doing his little presentation while he's supposed to be asking me questions. And mm -hmm. so I had, I didn't have this Bible left that one, but I had my new American standard. I had one of my Jeffrey Rice rebinds with me. Okay. So I, I sort of look at the guy in the front row and I'm, Hey, how you doing? Boom, yeah, boom, I did. Nice. I did hear that. Yeah, and then I got. I picked up my. Hey, see the Jeff Race. Pretty nice, you know. And it was my way of saying, "Look, filibuster all you want, but this isn't a cross examination. Sure. And what, what, what do you think you're accomplishing here?" And so, that was a bad thing. I think that it was designed. I think that in debate preparation, the decision was made. Cross X is what White knows to do. Knows how to do really well. Mm -hmm. So we need to have our questions prepared. We need to have lengthy setups for them uh, to take as much time as possible. And here are some of the responses that you're going to need to go into and, and go as long as you can on them. Try to eat up as much time as possible. Because sure. I will tell you, I don't think I'm, I'm betraying any confidences here, that he did ask uh, about a week before to uh, take one of the cross-ex periods out and make that audience questions. 
Mm. And we said, no, we'll, we'll stick with the, with the process. Yeah. So, um, well, I like the fact that the cross-examination was very long. In my opinion, I think the cross-examination is the best part of the debate because you really, I mean, they're designed for clash, right? You have, right. The, well, that, that's where a debate takes place. If you don't have cross-examination, yeah. just watch one guy's video and the other guy's video and the other, that, that's, right. that's, that's all, that's all you've got. It doesn't, there's no, there's now, no meaningful exchange taking place, but there are supposed to be rules. And uh, doing two and a half minute setups with all sorts of objectionable stuff that the other guy doesn't believe mm -hmm. as as the setup of the question is sure. not how you're supposed to do it. Sure. Um, so yeah, my, my favorite part is when when you said uh, he's like, can I can I respond to that? And he was like, no. And then you started laughing. He's like, all right. <laughs> well, I've had this experience with a lot of people. It, it, a lot of people will define terms for us as Calvinists because they right. have an understanding of what Calvinists believe and that's it. And then they'll use that narrative against the reform position. But I want to, I want to shift, uh, shift a, a moment here if, if you don't mind. So, um, in, I've been following some of the reactions of the debate now, granted, you've probably seen a whole lot more than I have. Oh, sure. No apps for sure. I, I don't imagine I, I'm glad, but I know you were joking, but you're kind of not, I'm glad you said it was my fault because some people think that you're sitting behind your laptop waiting for Tim Stratton or some other Molinist to say something so that you can make a response. Just for the record, anytime that Dr. White in the, in the recent couple of weeks or months has made mention of Molinism, it was probably directly or indirectly because I asked him or bugged him over Twitter. So um, he has another, he has a life, he has a ministry. This is not well, his main focus. And everybody knew, I, I mentioned, I had to drive from Houston back to Phoenix <laughs> after that. Right. Okay. So, right. You know that has anyone ever driven across Texas? <laughs> that that's a country. That's not a state. That, that, um, that's very true. And, but, and so you know. But but okay. So so but here here's kind of the main thing. Okay, and this has been the narrative that's going on. So so Dr. White wins on rhetoric points, and I don't think that was insulting. I think I think people admitted as a debater, you are far more experienced. You know how to navigate the ins and outs of the debate. But those who tend to uh, lean towards Tim's side. Yes, he lost on uh, form, but he won on content. So uh, that this is this is what the narrative is. So what yeah. I want to do is uh, I want to read to you uh, his three premise, uh, his two premises, and his conclusion. Um, and so we can kind of uh, clear the mist if people can say, "Well, Dr. White's trying to avoid this that." In reality, live debates, you don't always, they're not as clean and nice as we would like. So I don't think anyone was trying to avoid anything per se. You just don't get those clear answers. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to read uh, Tim's argument. It's just three simple steps um, and then ask you, which premise do you disagree with? And maybe you can kind of just take a few moments to unpack why you don't think his conclusion logically followed. Because he did, what I did appreciate about Tim's argument is that um, he did give a deductive argument. Um, for his position. So uh, let's let's look through this. So premise one, if scripture implies both A, humans occasionally possess libertarian freedom, and B, all human activity is predestined before creation, then scripture implies Molinism. Premise two, scripture implies both A and B. Three, therefore scripture implies Molinism. So for folks who aren't aware, this is a deductive argument with... Um, uh, that if the premises are true, the conclusion would follow logically and necessarily. The question is, are the premises true? And did Tim sufficiently defend those premises? So uh, which premise there, Dr. White, would you take issue with or you'd want to expand upon? And I could quickly re repeat them for you. 
well, that presentation, mm -hmm. again, as as I pointed out in my opening statement, um, and no one no one says, oh, hey, by the way, boy, Tim didn't even didn't even try to respond to your points in your in your in your opening because he didn't. I mean, pretty much just left him alone because he just wanted to stick with that. Sure. Because what? Because that form of the argument does not even try to assert the existence of what makes Molinism work. So, first thing again, that's being ignored. So, where does that? How did? How then does he prove his point from that? Well, first he has. How, how what was the phraseology if so, there is ever well, an instance of or yeah, well, so let me read it let me read the first premise to you and then you can kind of continue on so premise one if scripture implies both a humans occasionally possess occasionally. freedom yeah. and b all human activity is predestined before creation then scripture implies molinism so there's there's how you get so how would it imply Molinism, mm. only if you've established the counterfactuals, because that's because that, that's what it's saying is it is scripture is implying the existence of, and I I, I just sort of like the subjunctive conditional thing, counterfactual thing mm -hmm. seems. I, I mean, everybody recognizes that God knows what His creatures would do. The issue mm -hmm. is when does God know this? Sure. And that gets skipped. That's that's not even that is not even in the argument you just presented. Can, now, can I can I make mention of something here? So I do know that Tim has been heavily influenced by uh, Dr. Kirk McGregor, who right. is, uh, is an expert in this area. Now, if I can if I can venture a guess, I think that what he's trying to do is establish middle knowledge kind of indirectly by establishing libertarian freedom, because right. if. God has, if libertarianism is true, then that would seem to be connected to the notion that in order for libertarian freedom to be true, God must have knowledge of counterfactuals prior to the divine decree. Now, I don't think he demonstrated libertarian freedom, but I think perhaps that's the way he was going. That's why at first I thought he seems to be diverting in his opening statement by uh, his burden by attacking Calvinism, but he may have, now that I think about it, he may have been trying to... Um, refute your position so that the libertarian free will position is the only one left and then argue for that. So like if determinism is false, then this is the only option you have. And here are my reasons for, for why this is the case. And if libertarian free will is true, then that implies God may have this knowledge of counterfactuals of creaturely freedom logically prior to the decree and ergo Molinism is biblical. I think that might've been his route, but what do you think of that? Yeah. Uh, I think that, is descriptive of what he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, but I think everyone can recognize that the very term implication and then the term was occasionally. Mm -hmm. um, what what was uh, my, my guess would be from the cross-examination that that has something to do with Adam. And th at that point, we were struggling because of all the filibustering and stuff like that. But at that point, I pushed him on that because I was saying, wait a minute, that doesn't help your, your position. And 
he, he seemed to even he asked me a question which was uh, was Adams and I'm not sure he put it this way but something along the lines was Adams fall a part of God's decree right and then he said he agreed that it was sure and so how does that fit with Adam occasionally is 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 occasionally having to do with the fall of man or is occasionally have to do with what he calls earthly matters sure uh, and for people in the in the audience earthly matters versus heavenly matters um whether you go to McDonald's or Burger King for lunch one day is an earthly matter. It doesn't matter in the long run, et cetera, et cetera, uh, versus heavenly matters being salvation or things that end up impacting the very time timeline and things like mm -hmm. that. Most of us would argue that everything impacts the timeline. Sure. <laughs> everything is related to everything else. Um, um, and so, you know, to the to the color of the tie that you wear one day or something sure. like that. I've used a lot of illustrations about that, but thou sir depend also on what he means by occasional. Okay. Uh, as to so, whether oh, he's trying trying to establish a a categorical libertarian free will, or if 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 all he's doing is is saying that we act according to our natures, then that's conditional and that's not going to establish the kind of libertarianism that he needs. I think. I think he would say that we could act in accordance with our nature, but that there are multiple options that a person can choose libertarianly that is consistent with, with one's nature. But, but if we can go, uh, okay. So, so, so just to clarify, cause I know more of a, more of our analytically minded audience would want to know which premise of the argument do you disagree with? Do, would you take issue with that first one? Would you? Well, it's, 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 it all gets down to the definitions because you're, you're, you're using the term libertarian free will. You're not defining whether you are talking about that in the in the fullest sense of uh, categorically able to do anything. So I would, think, I would think Tim would 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 hold to the position of the categorical ability. So so you would need categorical ability. So is that the point you would take issue with? So premise one: humans occasionally possess libertarian freedom. You'd say, wait a minute. You haven't, you know, would you, would, is that a premise that you'd say, hold on, I disagree with that. You haven't demonstrated libertarian freedom from your That's, philosophical arguments and your biblical arguments. Well, certainly not from your biblical arguments. Um, <laughs> I agree. Uh, most, I agree. Most definitely. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so, definitely. so you, you take so, issue with, but the whole issue of implication as well would have to be, would have to be teased out there. What do you mean? What do you mean? Implies these things that, that, right. that means applying a consistent standard of exegesis actually teaches these things or that you can find or that you you are actually saying because this is something that that craig does mm -hmm. that scripture underdetermines in these areas and therefore you can slide it in there those are two different mm -hmm. things so i would agree i would agree with that so so if scripture implies both a humans occasionally possess libertarian freedom i would take issue with his attempted defense of libertarian freedom both philosophically and scripturally right. um and and I think scripture implies needs to be teased out more. So yep. so you would say you would disagree and take issue with premise one, not that you would disagree with the validity of like the logical form. So if we were right. to grant one and two, the conclusion would follow. You just don't grant that he sufficiently defended premise one. The detail, the detail, the details are all in the definitions. 
Yes. Uh, they're all the definitions. Uh, even even when that 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 pro that proposition refers to God's decree, mm -hmm. we've got it. We've got a lot of questions to ask at that point. What what do you mean by that? Because mm -hmm. we can go into all sorts of texts where that decree uh, included the desires of hearts and and, uh, and and the whole nine yards, not passively taking in some counterfactuals, but actually positively producing these things. And so right. that's that's what I would like to have seen us get into, but that would also be absolutely death for the other side. So I I can see why we didn't get into it. Okay, so um, now, okay, so his arguments really were supposed to be, I mean, I was surprised. I mean, I had spoken to, I, I Tim, <laughs> I love you, Tim. I had, uh, I, I mean, I've been speaking to you. I was speaking to Tim and, you know, I get it. Tim is, I mean, he, he loves apologetics. He loves, I mean, I, I, if I were Tim and I were debating you, I'd have my whole family, everyone and their uncle there. It'd be, you know, it's kind of a, a big event for, for me personally. Um, so I understand, I understand he, he got excited. Okay. That's fine. I, I get it. But I did tell Tim, okay. Tim is a bridge builder. This is why he has mere Molinism. He, he's kind of, he's just trying to kind of include as many people as he wants. Okay. I said, Tim, yeah. if you're going to speak to the Calvinist, the exegetically minded Calvinist, this is why I think a lot of Calvinists very much resonate with how you defend Reformed theology, because especially with your debate in uh, on Romans 9 with Leighton Flowers, you literally just walked through the text and could hold your hand and walk through the text. And I'm like, yay. Right. He walks the text. If you're going to speak to the uh, to the Calvinist, you need to walk through the text, right? Do what right. he does. I, I think if I'm debating James White, I would exegete, and then I would bring in some of those other considerations that are important as well. Um, and I was, it was unfortunate that, I mean, I told, I even told Tim, I hope you lose, <laughs> you know, I was like, <laughs> I'm not going for you, but if I were on your side, here's what I would do. And he just didn't do it. Now, that being said, he did um, bring up some scripture, which I'd like uh, some folks um, thought that you didn't address um, um, adequately. I, I think, it, I mean, I think generally speaking, you did fine, but I, I get it. Some people are like, well, I want them to unpack that. So this is a scripture that comes up all the time. And that is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 10 through 20. And uh, I just want to, uh, 10 through 20, here we go. Okay. Let's see here. I got a highlight there. So I want to read it for context. And I do apologize. It's lengthy, but I want to read it so that people can get it in their mind and then you could interact with it because this is a big deal for a lot of people. Deuteronomy 30 uh, verses 10 through 20. When you obey the voice of the Lord, your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and death, um, life and death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rule, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Now, this was used as 
libertarian freedom. Look, they were able to do it. It's not even hard. Um, how would you interact with that? Uh, that I mean, he didn't exegete the passage. He simply read it and kind of added some of his thoughts there. But how would you respond to the libertarian free willer uh, that this not so fast, Mr. Free Willer, this doesn't demonstrate what you're trying to demonstrate? Well, uh, these are certainly words that to a regenerate heart are very encouraging mm -hmm. and speak life. And to a heart that has a love for God's law and a love for God, uh, these things would, would make perfect sense. But what's amazing to me, has no one read Deuteronomy 28 and 29, which comes right before it? The blessings and the cursings that are then repeated by the prophets over and over again. Chapter 30, after the blessings and the cursings, is a exhortation that was ignored by the vast majority of Israelites, except for, in the words of the Greek Septuagint, the lima, the remnant. It is that remnant that found in these words guidance and light. Uh, it was that remnant that found in these, it was the 7,000 that didn't bow the knee to Baal in the days of Elijah that suffered through the, the famine and the, and the drought. They would find these words to speak to them. But for the vast majority of those who fell in the wilderness, the vast majority of those who engaged in the rebellion against God um, and uh, either didn't enter into the promised land or once they were in the, in the promised land, uh, brought the judgment of God uh, upon Israel and then upon uh, Judah as well. They did not hear these words because mm -hmm. why? Because they had hearts of stone. And they need to have those hearts of stone taken out and given hearts of flesh. And so it's just a matter of taking the entire testimony of the Old Testament scriptures. I don't even like calling them Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, as to the nature of man. And so to, to take one thing like this and then skip over your valley of dry bones. What, 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 what's a valley of dry bones supposed to do? What, what, what does it need? Um, until there is that supernatural en enlivenment, that giving of life, words like this, to, to, the, to the heart that is in rebellion against God, how does, how does any of this actually bring about a change of character? You have mm -hmm. to love God. And a heart of stone doesn't love God. And so it's, it's really a matter of recognizing the one thing that, that Molinists will not hear that we say, God ordains the ends and the means. Sure. This is a means. This is a means text whereby God instructs those that he has been gracious to and given them a heart of flesh. Mm -hmm. These become words of life. But you simply have to you simply have to read the rest of the Old Testament text to sure. see how many times the people rebelled and rebelled and rebelled, no matter how often God delivered them and God mm -hmm. showed mercy to them. They don't so, would you, so would you say then, of course, we're not interpreting scripture in isolation. So, um, you know, whether that passage in Deuteronomy 30 is teaching libertarian free will is really irrelevant when in isolation. But you would think that there are more clearer, theologically descriptive passages that tell us the nature of man's will when in bondage to sin. So when you take those clear passages and read these passages in the Old Testament, we can kind of have the divine commentary 
uh, in those clearer passages um, affect how we interpret I, those Old Testament passages? I don't want to call them clearer. I'm not saying this is not clear. I'm saying sure. it's not the only text that addresses the heart of man. Mm -hmm. And that when you, you know, just just spend a little time in Jeremiah and and, and the deceitfulness of the heart and the sickness of the heart, uh, he's the weeping prophet because he knows really the condition of man. And so it, it's not a matter of saying this is obscure and these other ones are more clear. These other ones tell us specific things about our hearts and our rebellion against God mm -hmm. that determine who it is is even going to be able to hear these words. I mean, sure. can we all be honest that, for example, in the Gospel of John, seeing and hearing, uh, John, John chapter 9, the ones who could see, couldn't see. The one who couldn't see, could see. Why don't you hear the words that I'm speaking to you, John chapter 8? Because you don't belong to God. Hmm. These are these are this is terminology that's used across scripture. And who's going to hear these these words? And, and it's interesting. Deuteronomy 30 is is used by Paul in regards to what? The word of faith in Christ. And and God's the one that has to by the spirit. By what power do we say Jesus Kurios, Jesus is Lord? Sure. By the spirit of God. So, I mean, even Paul finds in this text that very same concept. So, and, and I think, too, in order for Dr. Stratton to use that verse in favor of libertarianism, uh, which which implies that categorical ability, even just reading that passage, you don't you don't get the categorical ability, right? That all things being completely and metaphysically equal, the person could choose other than what they what they do, uh, even well, if. Even and the warnings are right there. Look at verse 17. But if you, but if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship of the gods, serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. It is the continuation of the blessings and cursings that just came, right. came you know, that are, that are part right. of the law as well. That but, we but, even, but even, even all that aside, just that passage itself, you don't get categorical, even if categorical ability were true. You, that's not it. That verse is not that, that those verses aren't enough to demonstrate it, which I think is which is the weakness of his position trying to demonstrate Molinism being biblical. Any passage that he's going to use implies freedom, but it doesn't imply this categorical freedom right. necessarily. And that's what he needs to what he needs to establish, I think, which leads me to my neck, the next passage. And it's a much shorter one. Um, first Corinthians chapter 10, <laughs> verse 13. I remember uh, Dr. Guillaume uh, Bignon, uh, by the way. Uh, Guillaume wasn't so happy when you mispronounced his name, but it's okay. He forgives you. <laughs> I did. I think he called him Guillaume Viong, if I remember correctly. <laughs> well, okay. It's all right. It was in the heat of the moment. He's, he, he's totally not. Upset. No, it's French. The fr there, there is no correct way of pronouncing French. <laughs> there, look, look, you don't even, look, the French have no grounds for ever complaining. <laughs> <laughs> because they don't pronounce 70% of the letters in their words. Okay? So that's, that's just, it's, it's what, it's, you know, that's close enough. It's, you know. Oh, my goodness. All right. Are oh, you making me that's laugh? That's why I like German. You, you know how to pronounce a German person's name. You read every letter. That's right. That's right. 
See, look, you threw me off my game, man. See, I remember when Tim says, hey, you throw me off too. <laughs> you threw me off. I don't know what question I was going to ask. You're asking about 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Again. Ah, yes. So so uh, when I had uh, Guillaume Bignon on, someone brought this That's up. What I said. What do you mean you're pronouncing it right and I'm pronouncing it wrong? Hey, I've messed up his name so much that now it's impossible for me to get it wrong. So it, it's Guillaume Bignon. If you want to sound really French, Bignon, you got to get the nasal. Um Someone brought this passage up and uh, they said, look, this passage teaches the categorical ability. And he whispers into his microphone. He says, no, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> again, because even though it looks like it might, you're, you're dealing with a, with a very subtle philosophical distinctions and you can't just drag that from an independent text. Um, and so first um, Corinthians doesn't necessarily teach uh, a conditional or categorical. I mean, that, we, we can't read either of our, our, our philosophical categories into that. Uh, we need to let the, the, the scripture stand at that point. You don't get that you get to use it as a proof text, in my opinion. But um, well, I, did, would, I did address this during the debate. I believe you did. But but for the sake of people who think you didn't, why don't you unpack it for us? <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to make everybody happy. Dr. Actually, if, if I unless I'm misremembering and it's possible that I'm thinking of preparation and not the actual debate, I recall looking at this and giving the context um, and, and the fact and going all the way back um, uh, to the fact that this is a, or I may have done it on the dividing line. Okay. So maybe, you know, I, I don't know uh, mm -hmm. because I, I know that I've also done it. I also, I, I preemptively addressed it. Uh, I think on the dividing line as well. So maybe that's when it was. I don't okay. Um, but, but this is again talking about uh, God's dealings with His people, uh, and the fact that uh, this is an example for us. Um, so, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. They were laid low in the wilderness. These things happen as examples for us that we should not crave evil things, as they also crave. Don't be idolaters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Let us not act in morality. Let us not try the Lord, uh, nor grumble. These are all the th he's going through all the various uh, sins of the people of, of Israel. Now, these things happen to them as an example, and they are written for our instructions upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So this is all of this is very, very practical um, exhortation again. And, and this is this is why I repeat what I said before. We believe God ordains the ends and the means. Preaching and exhortation is part of the means that God has ordained for the salvation of his people and for the sanctification of his people and the edification of his people and everything else. And so that's what we have here. And so this has a context. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. So what temptation? All these things that came before. So the people of Israel faced all these things before. They failed. They've given us our example. Don't be like them. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So mm -hmm. when you face temptations, don't be like the people of Israel. What was what was the um I like asking people this question because they never almost never know. Okay. What was the uh saying, the proverb? that God hated in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel? I'll ask you. Oh, great. 
<laughs> I just, I, I, I was, I was, I was at the hospital two days ago. I I'm, was not, I'm, not in a condition, I'm not in a condition to answer theological questions. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay. Well, I just drove home from Texas. What do you want? No. Um, hey, hey, this is the show where I get to put you on the spot and sit comfortably uh, in my chair. Uh, right, right. Okay. All right. Uh, and when are you coming on the dividing line? Next time on Radio Free Geneva, Eli Ayala exposed. That's um, right. <laughs> yeah. No, it was it was the proverb that the the, uh, uh, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth have been put on edge. Remember? Yes. And more than once, the the prophets had to deal with this idea that people were saying, you know what? We're we're facing we're experiencing this because of what our fathers did. There's no reason for us to repent. The, our fathers ate the sour grapes. Our teeth are put on edge. What that means is we're suffering for what they did. We don't have to. We don't have to repent. God says, "No, I'm talking to you." you they were put in, this, in in these positions, and they continued in their sin. You will be put in these positions, and God will make a way for you to not have to do these things. That I understand what they're what they're arguing. They're arguing that uh, in Calvinism. We believe that God forces people to do bad things. They don't want to do these things, but God puts a big old theological gun in their back and say, do bad things. And you and I both know that's not what we believe by any stretch of the imagination. And even though I raised that issue in the debate and I talked about God's restraining of evil, um, I never heard him. I've, I have never heard Tim respond to that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. ever. Uh, and what? What I think is interesting, and after having spoken to Tim some years ago, he said that if he wasn't a Molinist, he would be what he calls a Mysterian Calvinist. And what he means by that is, see, you're, I, no, it has nothing to do with the Marvel Universe. <laughs> a Mysterian Calvinist is someone who affirms that God determines all things, that man is sufficiently free, but that it's just a mystery as to how that all works out. Now, that... Now, now that's interesting. Some Calvinists have taken that position, but if you were to even grant that possibility, you're granting that there may be an explanation where those things are perfectly logical, which would kind of undercut his argument that says something along the lines that libertarian free will needs to be the case because of A, B, and C, you know, his, his argument. Right. right. Does, that, yeah. does that make sense? Well, I've heard him, I've heard him talk about that. So I, I may have actually heard him say something similar to that. Mm -hmm. Um, if if you're if you're using the term mystery in the way that I I said God uh, creates time, He foreordains whatsoever happens in time, and as a result, men are responsible, they're culpable, and what happens in time is real and important. He he sees a fissure between them, and I say, and if you ask how that is. Um, then you also have to answer, how did uh, God feed the children of Israel in the wilderness? How did God raise Jesus from the dead? How did God part the sea? How did, there's all sorts of these things. It, it's, it's strange that the Molinist will not allow for the supernatural when it comes to the issue of creation and time. That's mm -hmm. one area where everywhere else they go, yeah, sure. So, yeah, Jesus raised from the dead, feeding the 5,000. 
no problem with with uh, with the supernatural and all those things. And you go, and so the reason that creation of time can't be supernatural is what again? Mm-hmm. And you end up with these philosophical arguments that are really not derived from scripture. I don't see the scripture writers sure. struggling with these things. Now, uh, okay, what I found interesting, and maybe you can unpack this. I know you did discuss it a little bit in the debate, but his. Uh, um, and this is kind of this is the bridge this is the bridge builder aspect of Tim. He tried to use the London Baptist Confession, you know, your confession. Was that a, was that a bridge building or well, a, bridge use building, the other guy's stuff it, against him? It's bridge build. It could be both, right? So it, it's bridge building in the sense that he's trying to find a point of contact with you so that you could see his position. Now, well, I think a, that, a, a, a guy that I'm fencing with tries to find a point of contact with me too. It's the end of his sword in my chest. <laughs> So, okay. That's kind of nice. <laughs> All right, fine. A, a, uh, a devious and nefarious strategy that he would use Okay. All right. His strategy to use the London Baptist confession to almost suggest that the type of freedom that he was talking about is affirmed to some degree in the London Baptist confession. And so I, uh, from the kind of the chatter that was going on after the bait, a lot of people seem to have issue with your use of creaturely freedom and what Tim was defining as libertarian freedom. So uh, for clarification, can you define for us what you meant and be very as specific as you can? Because I know a lot of people nitpick on the words and, well, he didn't say this and he didn't say that. What do you mean specifically by creaturely freedom and how is that different? than uh, Tim's definition of libertarianism. Well, the the framers of the London Baptist Confession and myself uh, put the statement that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass before any of the other statements. Now, they immediately said, and this establishes, uh, you know, man's will doesn't violate all, all these types of things, but they started there. and. This is where I struggle to follow some of the argumentation on the subject of Molinism and just don't find it to be my bailiwick and, and the strongest argument against these things. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, I feel that once we enter into making the creature the center of the answer, we're we we've 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 lost the ground Mm. in other words that's why i and some people would fault me this fine that's fine i I, if other people want to approach this from other perspectives leave it to them but the reason that i focus upon the subjunctive conditionals counterfactuals everything else is because i see that as being the, the most direct assault upon the role of God in this subject. When we're talking about creatures, Adam versus fallen Adam, and have to find out where someone is on the subject of original sin, and everybody's all over the planet on that anymore, and what they mean by depravity, and what they mean uh, by fallenness, and I just don't see that you end up able to really get anywhere. And so mm-hmm. when I say creaturely freedom, the reason I'm using creaturely is to distinguish man 
from God. God has a freedom that mankind does not. And the realm of man's freedom is not autonomy. It's in the realm of creation. He is God's creature. And therefore, what happens in time, this is, first of all, it's all we're held accountable for. We don't, we, we can't know the divine decree. We can't be held accountable to it. And the, the scriptures do not say that we ever are. God gives us his revelation of his will, his prescriptive will. That's what we're held accountable for. And so my use of the term creaturely freedom is to emphasize the fact that it is the freedom of a creature in time, time that God himself has created and ordered. And this takes us back to where you got me in trouble originally before. Um, and that was when you asked me a question um, when I was on with you 2020, whenever that was. Uh, okay during lockdown, whenever, I think it was like this November, December, somewhere. Around okay. And I found out later by listening to later podcasts, when you had Tim on, that you were asking his questions. Mm -hmm. And I, I've never heard his questions. I, I, I'm not, I don't read his stuff. Uh, I had to, I've had to read all his stuff because of you. Okay. So, <laughs> so, um, so, uh, <laughs> My answer that you didn't find helpful and he didn't find, didn't even understand, comes back to this issue again. Mm -hmm. And that when he started talking about Christmas, had nothing to do with Christmas. It had to do with the fact that creaturely freedom is in the created realm. We are creatures. And since Jesus became man, that means what happens in this temporal realm has fundamental meaning and mm. God assigns it that fundamental meaning. And in fact, it is the very place where God has chosen to demonstrate his glory in the, in, in the entire redemptive uh, act that he is, that he is engaged in. Mm. And so if the eternal can enter into this, it's not a puppet show. It's not a Muppet show. It's not automatons. <laughs> and it's not and it's not in the Marvel universe either. Okay. It is real. It is. Um, and if it weren't this way, it is interesting to me. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but the philosophical, the philosophically minded folks, one thing they almost never really touch on or even think about are the spiritual forces that the scriptures tell us are a part of the creation around us. And if God was not sovereign over what happened in time, we would be slaves to those spiritual forces. But we are not because God's in control of those things. Mm -hmm. And we better be thankful that he is. But the, the philosophical folks, where do, how, do you, how do you put angelic and demonic realms into modus ponens and modus tollens doesn't fit. Uh, so that's why I, I say that that kind of approach just isn't big enough to deal with everything that scripture mm. actually, actually teaches us. So when I'm saying creaturely freedom, I'm not trying to say, oh, this is some special kind of freedom that somehow 
um, answers libertarian free will. I'm saying the Bible says we're creatures. Mm -hmm. And the Bible addresses texts like Deuteronomy chapter 30 to us. And so there's something real in what is being communicated to them. Now, the whole biblical teaching is, yeah, it's real. And when God, in his grace, frees you from slavery to sin, um, those words mean everything to you. They, they, they give you confidence and they give you hope. And, but I, I, can't get, I can't escape the fact that my Lord and Savior said, if you continue my words, you're my disciples indeed, you should know the truth. The truth shall make you free. I have to be set free. Hmm. That's that that that's the only thing a Christian I think can do, and can come to a meaningful conclusion. I don't see any peace being found in philosophical definitions mm-hmm. of what how, how you can philosophically define creaturely freedom under the sovereign decree of God. And what's strange is when you're dealing with Molinism, you're dealing with people because of the history of Molinism, because of what Molina was doing at that time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who will affirm um, in some fashion a, a very particular providence, a very um, minute aspect of God's decree of every, every aspect of creation. The one difference being that Form is determined not by something that comes forth from God's will, mm-hmm. but from the counterfactuals of human freedom. And just real quick, I know a lot of people seem to make this mistake when you say, when you refer to Molina. I don't think, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you're making the argument that because a Jesuit came up with the with this theological theory that it's wrong because of that. But mentioning that it is coming from a Jesuit is important to understand the broader context and motivation. And I think that's an important kind of thing to keep in the back burner when we're plowing through this. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, a lot of people accuse you of committing the genetic fallacy. And yeah, I I've heard when I hear you say those sorts of things, it doesn't seem like that's what you're trying to say. Yeah. I, and, not, know. And, and, and not a single one of them has ever debated a Jesuit either, but I have. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the reason to mention Molina is to recognize the form of the argument has a specific purpose. Mm-hmm. It didn't just, he wasn't just sitting around on an apple tree one day and said, oh, I'm going to come up with it. No, he was fulfilling the command of the Jesuit order and his general, Ignatius Loyola, to find a way to deal with the Reformation. And so it, it is formed in such a way that its definitional aspects are intended to accomplish a specific purpose. If, if you want to say, well, we don't have to worry about that. I don't, have, I don't have to worry why this guy came up with it. Well, okay, I'm a church historian and I deal with Roman Catholics all the time. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that the very essence of the things that many modern Molinists do not want to defend were the things that Molina came up with to accomplish a specific purpose. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating to me that the first claim that Tim makes after the debate is determinism was the big loser. And it's a spe- specific kind of determinism because most people 
almost every Armenian I know would say that Tim is a determinist. Right? I mean, he says, God decreed the fall. Well, you do have Armenians who think that Molinism is too deterministic for their right. for their taste. Oh, right? yeah. It would, you have it mixed across the board. But yeah, I definitely yeah. hear what you're saying there. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. So I, I don't think, you know, if people want to go, oh, you're, you're creating the genetic, genetic fallacy. If I said this argument is wrong because a Jesuit made it up, then I would, when I debate Jesuits, would have very short debates. Uh, obviously, that's not the point. Uh, the point is, if you, as a Protestant, ignore the Jesuit origination, you're probably missing the whole purpose of this, this discussion. Mm -hmm. And I can't stop folks from doing that. But if they take my church history class, they will fail. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, would it be okay? I, I mean, we're at the, we're, um, I mean, I don't, would you be okay taking a couple of live audience questions? It's okay if, if, if you don't. We, we can go, we can go to the 30 mark if you want. Okay. I appreciate that. First, I'd like to thank uh, Richie for his forty nine ninety nine uh, super chat. Thank you so much for that, Richie. I appreciate it. I do apologize ahead of time. There's so many questions and comments. It, se it seems like everyone just wants to debate you, Dr. White. What's going on? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, it's not just on Molinism either. <laughs> no, no. Uh, but I'm going to be picking questions at random. So I hope that I've asked fair questions uh, for people on the other side. Um, you know, I'm trying to, you know, phrase these questions in such a way where Dr. White could address them and that the opposite side can say, hey, that's a good answer or, hey, maybe I disagree, but thank you for asking the question and maybe there's some further clarification. So I'll try my best to do that. I'm going to be picking questions at random. So I do apologize. There's just too many for me. I, I do this all by myself, all by my loans. I don't have a cool, you know, Rich Pierce behind the glass <laughs> to help me out. So I do apologize. But um, here's a question from uh, the provisionist perspective. Question, what does White think quote, it is not too difficult mean in that Deuteronomy 30 passage. In other words, if, if it's not teaching libertarian freedom, then what's the point of saying it's not too difficult? It seems like they're saying, hey, the choice should be easy to, to pick the right thing. You know, you're not being withheld by God's determining forces. Well, once again, uh, we do see that uh, the people of Israel did eventually come up with the idea that it was too difficult um, because of what had happened to their, their fathers. Um, it is not too difficult for the regenerate heart, for the heart of flesh. Um, yes, if, if we love God and have been changed by God's grace, then we love his law and we desire to live in such a fashion as to glorify him. Mm. Um, but what do you hear from those who refuse to obey God's commands? Well, it's too difficult we can't do that um that's what the people of israel said we we are surrounded by people with other gods and it's too difficult to just worship the one true god because they they will attack us for that etc 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 so there was a context to the people of israel and then there's a context to us today it's not too difficult for whom for whom that's just let the rest of the entire revelation of scripture speak um, it is too difficult for those who are spiritually dead. But provisionists don't believe that there really is anybody who's spiritually dead. So mm -hmm. they, they might struggle with that. But you, you, you have to deal with heart of stone, heart of flesh, 
Um, it's right there in the text. You got to let the whole thing speak. speak. All right. Thank you. Uh, Idle Killer says, uh, oh. question, does James believe, believe God thinks? Is there activity in the mind of God? <laughs> My thoughts are not your thoughts. God, God, God himself uh, uses such terminology. So mm -hmm. I don't even know what that question is supposed to, supposed to be referring to. Yeah. Um, I, it might be, uh, discursive thinking i don't think god thinks discursively like one thought after another because that would imply that would imply time within right. god, god's nature right. i i suppose but uh the fact is god calls us to think his thoughts after him he uh re refers to uh and it, it's all in the creaturely realm so you you have to recognize that god as calvin says uh babbles to us as as to as to children and so he speaks in that in that fashion to us in that in that way. Doesn't mean that uh, God has come up with new ideas and new thoughts and oh, let's try a new way we've not thought of before or anything along along, along those mm -hmm. lines. No. Okay. Um, author Bear says a little off topic. I've heard James speak about John seven fifty three through chapters eight and eleven, and I totally agree with what he says about it. James, why do you think this passage keeps getting put in Bibles? Uh, John chapter seven. Yeah. Seven fifty three eight eleven. It's the Pericope adultery. Mm -hmm. uh, the story of the woman taken in adultery. It's, uh, I'll be real quick. It's, um, it's not found in the earliest, uh, manuscripts of the gospel of John. Uh, and in fact, amazingly, most people don't know this in some manuscripts, it's found in other places in John. And in some manuscripts, it's not found in John at all. It's found in two different places in Luke. Um, and so, uh, the first manuscript that contains it is Codex Vesicandibrigiensis from the fifth century, which I call the living Bible of the early, of the early church. It's one of the most unreliable manuscripts that we have. And so, um, it's not a matter of why does it keep getting put in? The answer to that would be tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's in the majority of Greek manuscripts. It became customary. It's many people, it's Dan Wallace's favorite Bible story that's not in the Bible, according to him. Um, and so uh, there are translations. Uh, I think the NET uh, removes it, if I recall correctly. Um, obviously, it's, it's always there in an, in, in an end note or something along those lines. But uh, if you really want to know the answer, it's that Bible publishers are scared to death that they're going to end up with a group of mad people parading around in front of their headquarters with signs. That's literally why it is. <laughs> okay. Not really. I, I believe you. Uh, Paul Day asks, uh, could Dr. White address the fact that the Apostle Paul exegeted the Deuteronomy passage in Romans 10 and that he gave a different exegesis than Stratton did? Well, that's what I mentioned, was that he he specifically uses it to in, in, in 10 to refer to that confession of of faith in Christ. So I did, I did mention that. And I, I would think that that would be relevant in the context of the fact that it's also in 9, 10, 11, that you have the remnant, uh, the nature of faith, all that type of stuff uh, coming in there. Um, and so I would, I would agree that that's, that's an important aspect to, and that's why I brought it up earlier is that that's not how Paul used it. Hmm. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thanks for your super chat, Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob asks, can God actuate a world in which as a true subjunctive conditional, Eli wears a Kuji while discussing subjunctive conditionals with Dr. White? 
<laughs> yeah, I think I think that uh, now he couldn't actualize a world where Rich would do that. Okay, um, but I I think if I if I like bought one for you, that you're a soft-hearted guy, and even if you hated it, you <laughs> would you would you would just not be able to to if you if you knowing want... knowing how close I am to death's door. Um, <laughs> So old. If if uh, you bought me a Kuji, I would wear it in every live stream. <laughs> I, would consider, I would consider it an honor. I totally would. Well, I gotta gotta find the right colors for you, but uh, they're getting harder and I'm harder. Brown. To find. I'm brown, so it gets something that brings out my my Hispanic natural brown colors. Okay, <laughs> that's right. All right, thank you for that, Doctor Bob. Question: Will Doctor White appear on on capturing Christianity? Would love Dr. White's thoughts. Also, would Eli have Cameron on? Why don't you answer that first question? Would you Would you go on capturing Christianity if you were invited? Um, I don't know. I'd have to know what the context would be. Probably not. <laughs> okay. Probably. Um, and for my part of the question, would I have Cameron on? Uh, sure. It just depends on what topic we discuss. I I did reach out to him a while back to discuss a topic that I thought would have been helpful for regardless of what perspective one uh, comes from theologically. But uh, yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, let's see here. Do, 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 do. We'll just do two more and then I'll let you go because I'm, I'm, I'm afraid this you'll never want to come on again. I've bothered you far too much. I got to get my last, uh, my last uh, bits here. Let's see. Uh, well, I hope you're enjoying yourself. I hope you've enjoyed the interviews, the, the times you've come on. Well, I, I, I wasn't actually complaining i'm just letting everybody know that uh you know people say well you know this molinism thing you know, you seem to be on it all the time like no eli's on it all the time not me it's just <laughs> all right so here's uh, pine creek this is our our resident atheist uh you've actually inter uh, interacted with some of his his stuff and um i'm sure you don't follow I think him I, I think i did once when i was in australia yeah, yeah, but um, but he's asking the question that's relevant to our topic. Uh, what is Molinism trying to accomplish? It seems to me any problem a Molinist has with Calvinism, they still have because God still created, knowing what would happen. He's right. <laughs> he's, that was my argument in the cross examination. I don't see that the theodicy works, uh, but fundamentally, from their perspective, uh. By affirming middle knowledge, they can say that, yes, God decreed all of this, but everybody did it freely, and therefore the problem of evil is solved, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. But you're right. If if God knew exactly what they would do, and then he orchestrates all the conditions to put them into the position of doing that, um, a lot of us struggle with the idea is how that in any way solves anything. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you. Um, JT Mull, thank you for your super chat. Uh, JT asks, if God created all things, including time itself, when or how does he act linearly uh, and bring things about from a timeless realm? God bless you both. And thanks for doing this. It's not a linear action. Um, you're, you're, the, the problem that we struggle with is even our language is tense-based, and so everything is linear because of the progression of time. But if God creates all of time and he himself is not bound by time, then he can create without then trapping himself in that to where he has to move along and be, quote-unquote, 
doing stuff. He's, I don't, I mean, this is one area where, where language does fail us because, uh, we, we are time bound creatures and we drag our limitations into every description we, we have of God. Mm. Um, it, it really is a, it really is. When I was younger, I don't know if anybody else did this. I liked sitting around and trying to think of eternity until you started getting dizzy, um, <laughs> because we, because you really, you really can't do that. Um, uh, and so it's it's not a matter of um, how does he act and bring about things from the timeless realm as if he's not created all of it as a as a whole, um, and then his actions in providentially uh, creating these things look to us as if he is experiencing time with us. How else could it be? But the assertion that's being made is that is not something that is limiting to God's limiting to God's being. It's not like he's mm -hmm. now trapped in time or something along those lines. Sure. All right. And my last and final question uh, is from the sire. Uh, also sometimes known as the fake Greg Bonson. <laughs> He's always got some, uh, interesting and fun questions, but this is a nice practical one to end on. What books would you recommend on Molinism from a Calvinist perspective? You probably would have far better answer to that than, than I, than I would have, because I'm just primarily familiar with, with, uh, some of the Molinist works. I, I have sure. a number of the, uh, Four Views works uh, where people went back and forth and, and discussed uh, stuff like that. But um, I would think that you'd have a, a bibliography at hand better than I would. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say that because one of the twin pillars of Molinism is libertarian free will, um, I would just get books that critique libertarian free will. So um, I'm not sure if there are books directly dealing with the grounding objection that would be too use, be useful enough for the average person. Uh, when the grounding objection issue uh, comes up, it's usually very philosophically dense. Um, but if you want to take a look at books that critique um, libertarian free will, um, I would look into Guillaume Bignon's work. Um, there's also- That's how I pronounced it. That that's right, <laughs> that's right. Um, I don't have my library in front of me. Maybe maybe in a future video, I'll kind of go through some books that might be helpful. But anything that critiques libertarian free will um, is going to be relevant to the Molinism discussion since it's one of the key uh, pillars. Now you do have some Molinists who kind of differ. Some will say, well, you know, it's not one of the pillars. Molinism is just a view of of God's omniscience. Um, so you need to ask questions as to the sort of Molinist you're dealing with. But I would say attacking libertarian freedom and um, with the grounding objection, I'm not sure. Uh, I haven't really read much at the popular level uh, regarding that. So sorry about that. Um, sure. Well, Turretin, obviously, Turretin's discussion is still extremely valuable. Oh, yeah. Francis Turretin. That's right. So and 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 even just being well versed in some of the reformed confessions with how, to, how it describes the will and the biblical references that it, that it provides. Um, all right. Well, Dr. White, you have engaged in over 200 debates. No, I haven't. No. What? No, 100, 176. Oh, okay. Why did I think? Now, if I, if I counted debates like Eric and Canner, I've done over 5,000. <laughs> Guilty pleasure admission. The two days before, uh, before I went to the hospital, I watched your critique of Ergen Canner. I don't why? know why. I have no idea. Why? You know That's why you got sick. No, that 
It destroyed your immune system. I just think I know why. The first time you ever came on, I think it was before we went live, you saw my degrees from Liberty and you said, oh, is that Liberty? And I'm like, yeah, that's where I graduated from. And you said, did Ergen Canners sign those degrees? <laughs> it popped in my mind. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go listen to those. So I listened to it. And maybe that is the reason why I got sick. I'm not sure. It could be. It could be. <laughs> so so that, was that the first time you would, you would, you knew all that stuff? No, but it was, it, it was, I sometimes I revisit some of your old stuff because, um, not because the, the, the topic, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going downhill. I agree. Yes. Yeah. No, no. I, I, I thought it was excellent picking a part of, of, of that, but anyway, you've engaged in 170 some odd debates. You've prepared for all of them. You do the dividing line. You teach at a seminary. You agree to come on to things like this for a completely unknown person like myself I thank you so much for your work in the ministry. I know that there are people who are going to watch this and say, at the end of the day, I disagree with everything Dr. White has to say, or at the end of the day, I disagree with everything Stratton had to say, but I just want to thank you for putting in the energy and the work in ministry, regardless of where people end up in terms of their views. I am very grateful for the work that you put in. It has been a blessing to me. And I'm sure it's been a blessing to countless others. So thank you so much, Dr. White, for coming on. I, I appreciate you're the next generation. Uh, you got to get yourself feeling better so you can get back to work and be energetic and do all your uh, presuppositional stuff. Because I'm going to tell you, um, there's a lot of people coming after uh, presuppositionalism these days. So um, uh, you got to you got to be out there doing your thing. We all do. So sure. keep up the good work. Well, you're an inspiration to all of us, and um, I hope to uh, to accomplish just an, an inch of what you've accomplished so far. So I don't know how you do it, but uh, I was having a conversation with someone. I was like, how, do, how does he keep his family together with all the stuff he does? Like, how does he balance it all? It's a pretty... I'm, I'm, an, I'm an empty nester. I'm a grandfather. And um, yeah, I, I, I wish I could get much more done than I'm getting done. So, mm. you know, the time the time is 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 short. Amen. Well, thanks again. And guys, just as a heads up on March 3rd, I'll be having Dr. Scott Oliphant on to talk about Ooh. apologetics and persuasion. He's got a new book coming out from a presuppositional perspective, of course. And so we're going to keep it going. Uh, I know I have a mixed um, guest come on, but I, I do like to get on my presup, uh, uh, you know, uh, topic so that we can kind of continue to promote this uh, very powerful and what I believe to be a very biblical apologetic. So stay tuned for that March 3rd, and I'll keep you guys updated for more. Thank you so much for watching. Dr. White, once again, thank you so much for giving me your time. And that is all for this episode. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye.